Rebecca, thanks so much for coming on the show. Thanks for having me. Have you finished reading the AI executive order? I have finished reading it. It is almost 20,000 words long. You're one of the few people I've talked to who's actually read the whole thing, I think. Well, it's it's a lot of uh, definitions, uh, which is um, very interesting. It's it's interesting to imagine Joe Biden thinking about, you know, like 10 to the 23rd integers and uh, nucleic acids or whatever and all the stuff that's mentioned in that. But it's 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 interesting because it reminds you of just how big of a topic AI is when, when you go through the details of it. That's absolutely right. So today we're going to be talking about the AI executive order. And we also have an interview with Yang Lee, a 20-year veteran of the CIA who spent much of his career at the agency studying North Korea. He joins the show to discuss how North Korea is using its hacking units as a tool of statecraft. That's coming up on Safe. Welcome to Safe Mode. I'm Elias Grohl, Senior Editor at CyberScoop. Every week, we break down the most pressing issues in technology, provide you the knowledge and the tools to stay ahead of the latest threats, and take you behind the scenes of the biggest stories in cybersecurity. An attack is coming. It's about keeping us safe. He's just a disgruntled hacker. She's a super hacker. Stay alert. Stay safe. Stay safe. This is Safe Mode. My name is Elias Grohl. I'm the host of Safe Mode. I'm joined today by Rebecca Heilweil, a reporter for our sister publication, FedScoop. Rebecca, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. So this has been AI week in Washington. The White House has rolled out its long-awaited AI executive order. It's a beast and places major new requirements on federal agencies on how they use AI. And the EO is trying to strike a balance for government use of AI. Let's, why don't we begin by kind of talking through some of the trade-offs at play here. Yeah, so if you've been following the tech policy discussion in Washington for the past few years, you've heard a lot about AI safety, um, concerns about discrimination, bias, privacy risks, a lot of concerns with artificial intelligence. At the same time, we've also heard a lot about how the U.S. government really wants to invest in artificial intelligence and invest in this technology and really become a leader in it. So if you read the executive order, it really feels like the government trying to strike a balance or just trying to do both essentially with trying to regulate the technology and rein it in, um, and especially with certain sensitive use cases, while also trying to actively encourage the use of artificial intelligence within the government and promote um, an AI economy. So for that reason, it's really incredibly interesting. And it's, it's not saying no to this technology. In a lot of ways, it's saying yes to it, but it's also trying to appease a lot of concerns about what the impact it could, the impact it could have on, on everyday people. Yeah, what, one of my sources this week described the AI as a starting gun for government and AI, which I think is a pretty good metaphor for it. So let's, you're reporting this week, you've been looking a lot at federal agencies and how they're going to be approaching AI post executive order. What are agencies going to be dealing with? So, yeah. A whole range of agencies are are called up to do stuff related to AI um, because of this executive order. So there are, you know, again, it is twenty, nearly twenty thousand words long. So really, a lot of stuff in there. But there are new responsibilities for NIST. There's new responsibilities for Commerce, for Energy, for HHS, for for OMB. Um, basically, every agency that has sort of some subject area that might relate to artificial intelligence, they have some assignment um, that they that they have to deal with. Um, I think what's interesting about this is that it is telling them to use this technology, research it, while also trying to stay aware of the risks that might be associated with it. At the same time, it's also creating a framework to massively increase the amount of 
AI related staff within the federal government. Notably, it talks a lot about chief AI officers, which is a increasingly important uh, position within this discussion. So many reports. A lot of reports. <laughs> we're going to be we're going to be reading reports. I think for the next year, we're going to be up to our necks in reports. And I think we're the, probably some of the few people who actually end up reading these reports. So I, we're we're going to have a lot of fun. Yeah, if you love reading, this is great news for you. Yeah, if you love reading, become a uh, cybersecurity and uh, federal technology reporter. You'll be reading fun reports your whole life. Um, some of the stuff that I've been focused in on this week is the uh, security and reporting requirements. That's the part of this and. There's, I think it's interesting the, the extent to which the executive order is engaging with questions of existential risk. There's a big debate about whether AI safety should be focused on existential risk questions. So the idea that an AI model might be used to create novel biological weapons and whether that maybe crowds out focus on more near-term risks like privacy, bias, and discrimination concerns. And that EO is really trying to do both. And it has interesting requirements for the frontier model. So any frontier model above a certain size, big companies running training runs will have to report the results uh, to the government. Any model that poses so-called national security risks, the government wants to be aware of it. The AI sets out... Um, a requirement for the Department of Commerce via NIST to develop standards for red teaming AI models. This is an emerging discipline that is more kind of art than science right now. And big companies that run these so-called frontier models will have to report the results of their red teaming exercises back to the federal government. And the idea is that the federal government wants to be aware of so-called CBRN risks, chemical, biological, radiological, and nuclear risks, and whether these models might be used to create weapons. It's also trying to engage with the discussion around AI and um, disinformation. And the government wants to create standards for watermarking content. So basically that content that a user would encounter on the internet, they would see some type of verifiable watermark to know that either content is authentic or that content has been generated using AI. And again, this is another kind of emerging discipline where the computer scientists are working hard on and there is some technology in this space to do it but it's very industry-led, it's fractured, and the government with the EO is, I think, trying to bring a bit of coherence um, to this space. Um, but I wanna return to the, the privacy question on this. There's a lot of concern and attention in the EO on AI and privacy. This is something you've been looking at, Rebecca. What are the implications for privacy as it relates to AI in the EO? Yeah, one of the things that the executive order makes clear is that the Biden administration is not thinking about AI and privacy as separate issues. And that's sort of been a strain of thought that's become more and more accepted. Um, obviously, AI and privacy are, are incredibly tied up together. You have the data that a lot of machine learning systems are trained on, which can raise privacy risks. And then you also have the the potential privacy threats raised by the application of those technologies, whether it's like facial recognition or um, social media surveillance tools or, or things like that. So, you know, throughout the EO, there's a lot of discussion of, okay, you're thinking about this AI system, how does it impact privacy? Uh, but there are also, you know, more specific um, 
stipulations in there. One of the things it talks about is how to integrate AI into existing privacy regulations that we already have. Obviously, the federal government is farther along in creating privacy rules for, you know, just operating as a government than it is for AI. And and one strategy is to sort of think about AI concerns as part of the existing privacy uh, rules that you might have to meet. Um, another thing is that it encourages the government to use uh, what's called privacy enhancing technologies. Um, so that might be like zero knowledge proofs, federated learning, a lot of really technical discussion related to that. But mm. this is an exciting idea for some people um, because it would sort of cr- help create a market for privacy enhancing tech. I just talked to the president of the Mozilla Foundation, um, Mark Sermon, who was really excited about that prospect as well. I think we should talk about the call for privacy legislation also. Yes. Uh, Biden still wants it. Yeah. And is tying it to AI. Executive. Will it happen? Yeah. Executive <laughs> orders can't do uh, everything. And uh, the you know call in the executive order um, or the Biden uh, White House discussion of it is a reminder that they, they still need Congress to do something. And obviously, there's a big process right now led by Schumer to sort of think about AI. And obviously, we're still waiting on privacy regulation, though, that, mm. you know, just echoes back to a conversation a lot of tech policy experts are having about how do you put those conversations together and, and talk about those issues in concert. Yeah, it's interesting because, you know, there's been this intense interest in trying to regulate AI in D.C. And... Like there's momentum behind the AI conversation in Washington in a way that I don't think I've really experienced during my 10 years in the city. And at the same time, you know, folks who have been advocating for privacy legislation, like they're still sta- like they're standing over in the corner just going like, hey, we're still here. We still want this. Like the thing we've been advocating for for the last five to 10 years, you know, it, it has huge implications for what you guys are talking about with regards to AI. And yet the privacy legislation piece is it's just kind of getting missed. Yeah. It, I think that again is probably why there's a sort of hope in sort of combining those discussions. Yeah. Um, I've spent a lot of time talking to the electronic privacy information center, privacy focused um, uh, nonprofit here in DC. And, you know, they talked about in a letter they sent pretty close to when uh the executive order came out about, you know, taking privacy impact assessments and asking how can we think about AI as part of the privacy impact assessment process that already happens. Um, And I think that is probably a strategy um, a lot of privacy advocates are are looking into. But, you know, a lot of privacy threats are going to come from come from AI. Uh, So we'll have to see how that see how that goes. Um, But yeah, you know, see if Congress will do anything. Maybe privacy legislation will finally happen. Maybe this will be the year. All right, you've mentioned OMB a lot during this conversation. That's the Office of Management and Budget. They issued some guidance this week trying to implement the EO. This is another extremely dense but very important document. What are they trying to do? Yeah, so it should be noted that this guidance, um, while it's being marketed as part or sort of part of this big AI effort coming out of this week from the White House, you know, we've been waiting on it for for quite some time. There's actually some pressures that it came up in a congressional uh, like oversight subcommittee hearing. OMB has been charged with creating rules for how federal agencies ought to be using AI themselves. There's a lot of focus in this executive order, but just in general on how the private sector might use artificial intelligence or create artificial intelligence. But this is about 
what do federal agencies do? And that's that's a lot of AI. That's the AI that the TSA uses. That's the AI that uh, the Social Security Administration might be using, which has an enormous influence over people's lives. Um, so we've been waiting for quite some time for OMB to issue that guidance. They were supposed to do it. They finally did it this week. So that's, that's very exciting. Um, but that guidance sort of improves the infrastructure around the government's use of this technology. So that includes, you know, creating a, a more formal process for chief AI officers and sort of mimicking some of those other chief officers positions that we that we see in federal agencies, creating agency governance boards of a focused on AI, um, like within those agencies. It also changes, this is a big topic for us at FedScoop, um, changes aspects of the process of disclosing AI used by the government um, as part of the last executive order on artificial intelligence under the Trump administration in 2020. Mm. All the federal agencies were told that you had to create a list of all the AI systems you use. Um, not all the agencies, I should say. Many agencies were told that you have to make a list of all the AI you use and disclose it um, and to disclose a lot of those use cases publicly. Um, there have been a lot of issues with those disclosures. A big Stanford report looked at that. We've been doing a lot of um, reporting on those as well. And this sort of added improvements to that process, which is uh, really exciting to see. Um, and it, th this guidance also importantly created sort of new requirements around uh, sort of standards around very specific um, sensitive uses of AI. So things like emotion detection, facial recognition, things that really um, raise a lot of like civil rights and privacy concerns. This sort of focuses in on those more than we've seen from past uh, government actions on AI. Mm, okay. Why don't we talk a little bit about criticisms as well or flaws of the executive order? What are you hearing in terms of, I don't know, disagreements, criticisms? Yeah, I mean, I'm I'm sure there's like a lot of criticisms, and there's uh, there's so much in it that there's a lot to disagree mm -hmm. with, and also I guess for a lot of people, also a lot to like. Yeah. Um, the two big sort of concerns I've heard: one is that uh, the executive order focuses on increasing. AI staff, like people who would have expertise with AI within the government, and this there's this big AI talent surge that the Biden administration is focused on, but they're still so they're still working on hiring all of these people, which is going to take some time. At the same time, all of these agencies now have to go about implementing these new 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 requirements and also start using more AI and and promoting AI innovation. So we have to both do the hiring and the uh, regulation and the innovation all at the same time. And this question of like, whether there are the people to do it right now. Um, another concern, uh, that I expect might, might continue to sort of come up is that this, uh, executive order leads a lot to the agencies themselves. And it, you know, there's concern if you're some that like one of the, the agencies won't come up with particularly good rules. Like it doesn't spell out, this, the executive order doesn't say like, this is when you can use this system in this circumstance and not, it, it sort of lets the agencies sort of take, you know, take the baton. And I think there's concern that that, you know, the agencies could essentially uh, do a bad job. Um, so <laughs> that's, those are the sort of the big systemic criticisms of the executive order, but there has been a lot of positive responses to it. I think because it's trying to do everything, uh, people have a lot to sort through and we'll have to see how it goes. I think that's exactly right. I, the response overall, it seems has been surprisingly positive, I would say, both from industry and civil society. Civil society groups who I, I think have been extremely critical broadly of the government's approach to tech policy issues are for the most part, I think, welcoming this. And as you say, there are definitely folks who want 
stronger regulations in place, stronger protections in place, particularly on questions of civil rights, privacy, bias, discrimination. Um, but I think they're encouraged, at least by what they're seeing so far. Um, but Rebecca, thank you so much for coming on the show and your great reporting on this. I'm sure we will talk again. Yeah, thanks for having me. Up next on Safe Mode, I'm joined by Yang Li, a 20-year veteran of the CIA who spent much of his career at the agency studying North Korea. He joins the show to discuss how North Korea is using his hacking units as a tool of statecraft. That's coming up on Safe Mode. I'm joined today by Yang Li, who spent more than two decades at the CIA studying North Korea. From 2017 to 2019, he served as the Deputy Assistant Director of the Korea Mission Center, and prior to that, served in a variety of analyst roles covering North Korea and East Asia. He is now the Director of Global Risk Analysis at Google. Young Lee, welcome to Safe Mode. Thank you. Thank you so much, John. Thanks for having me. So in the last 15 years or so, North Korea has established itself, I think really in the, the public conscience, as, as a major player in cyberspace. They've been responsible for some of the most destructive ransomware attack on records. They've stolen millions of dollars in cryptocurrency heists and pioneered hack and leak operations. But I thought I'd begin by going back in time a bit. You joined the CIA in 1997 as a North Korea analyst. And I'm curious, at that point, what did North Korea's cyber program look like? Um, well, North Korea's cyber program, actually, well, if you want to call it that, and a lot of what we understand it is um, public accounts from North Korean defectors. It's it started it started in the nineties. It started in the nineties and early nineties. Um, as part, I believe, and I believe part of it was there's some great academic work that's been done on this. And part of it part of it was started as uh, UN development projects. Um, in ninety one or ninety two, I think North and South Korea had joined the UN. Um, they were observing members for a while, and they both joined together uh, in the in the late, early nineties. I, I like to say, and part of it was there's some development projects that was that helped North Korea, and I, I believe um, some of the earlier indication was upgrading telecom, um, typical UN development projects, and part of it that's how I believe the Korea Computer Center uh, got started. And when you talk to any North Korea watchers about where did it all just start, they usually point to the KCC, um, which at that time, and I, I, KCC is still, still in existence, which at that time was something for North Korea to get started with computing. Um, mm -hmm. I think in, in the Western world at the time, uh, ownership of personal computers, PCs were really exploding. And North Korea always tries to stay modern, uh, keep up appearances, and and saw and saw uh, donated computers as an opportunity to get in on the act. Um, in the early 2000s, you may recall the first big summit between Kim Jong Il and South Korean President Kim Dae Jong in 2000. Uh, uh, economists had a hilarious uh, front page cover with picture of Kim Jong-il saying, greetings, Earthlings. <laughs> and that was, um, it was a kind of a big coming out party for, um, for, for, for North Korea. And part of that was, once again, helping North Korean development, education. Um, and I believe South Korea is providing a lot of laptops. Um, Samsung was making laptops. Uh, and 
and it was all for the purpose of education and training. And in the 90s and early 2000s, I don't think anybody saw it. Everybody just saw it as a goodwill thing to do, uh, bring information technology to uh, North Korea. Uh, information superhighway, Al Gore's information superhighway was a big thing, being online. And I think um, being online, having computers, uh, was a, would, would open the door to democratize, democratizing influences and North Korea being more part of the international community will tamper their behavior and hopefully open up the democratic influences. And I, I and this, there was a predominant opinion in, in the in the nineties and early two thousands. And and you know, I, as far as I I can I, I see it, looking back into this issue, it really was the, it was the start of the North Korean computer foray into computer technology and uh, computer programming. Mm. It's interesting. I I think the last couple years have been a real reckoning with this idea that the spread of digital technology, the spread of the internet would lead to all of these good things. It would lead to democratization, greater access to information. And we're now reckoning with some of the unintended consequences of that. But uh, North Korean cyber attacks maybe hasn't been one that I I would place in that bucket. But um, the idea that a development program would end up being the beginning of a cyber offensive cyber program is uh i think an interesting frame for that i'm wondering if you could talk a bit about how that turned from what was intended as a development program ended up transforming into what we know today as a, a quite aggressive north korean mm-hmm. hacking operation you know honestly i think I think it's part of the global trend. Um, certainly, this isn't something the North Koreans invented themselves, and um, uh, and I'm sure that there's been there's 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 been experts or or cyber researchers who looked at the evolution of cyber warfare, where it all started, uh, who who did the first who crossed the Rubicon of the first denial of service attacks, etc. And it was, but when they caught on, they caught on pretty quickly, and and. Um, when I started seeing it, I, I grew up as a North Korean military analyst, uh, looking at North Korean military and looking at North Korean political military, uh, uh, political military structures. And I, you know, I, I, once again, I can only speak for myself as, as a 22 year veteran, um, and as a former chief of analysis, leading the analytic effort for Korea, that's, that's, I was a creation manager leading all Korea analysis for, for a long time. And I, I was completely caught off guard. Uh, people asked me, what was my biggest surprise? Uh, and I think people, when they ask me that question, they expect me to say the nuclear technology. I said, no, I, nuclear, I, I actually kind of thought eventually they would get. And how I explained it was, it's 1940s technology. It's 1990. Eventually, they're going to figure it out. The genie's been out of the bottle for so long. Uh, but with the cyber computer i you know i completely missed it um i was i was shocked i was surprised and i've basically been um making my making taking my paying my rent being a north Korea watcher since january 1997. it was really easy and they were able to progress that quickly because i think it was really easy to underestimate north korea's cyber technical capabilities until you really sat down and thought about it 
if their public education system can produce people that understand rocket physics and nuclear physics, it can train somebody to write a line of code. Yes, people make fun of North Korea for not having electricity. Um, just go on Google and, and, and search North Korea at nighttime. And one of the first images you see is that, that you've probably seen it yourself. You've seen it everywhere. The nighttime image of, of lights between North Korea and South Korea. Um, I, if somebody would have asked me about North Korea cyber in the early to early to mid two thousands, I would have just kind of, I would, I, once again, shame on me, but I would have considered it a joke and said they don't even have electricity. Hmm. But once, once again, North Korea keeps surprising us, and that's one thing that I learned as a North Korea watcher is you know, never underestimate their um, ability to focus on a problem and be able to solve that problem. And what you hear from when you hear from like public accounts and um, a lot of the open source media uh, on this is actually, in, it was in the South Korean media and that's where I read a lot of this. Um, we were just talking about North, that North Koreans were having mass contests, mass Olympiad to pick the best scientists, to pick the, fu- pick the future scientists uh, from politically reliable family, to pick the future whatever. And um, I distinctly remember reading on a uh, Korean Monthly Journal article, they were talking about how they're picking on uh, now these kids were being diverted to um, doing computer and computer and computer sciences uh, program. And a lot of this, a lot of this was um, published after I believe their attack on, on, on Sony Pictures Entertainment. And um, it's somebody in North Korea had the vision to recognize that this was that this this provided them an asymmetric advantage against against and who people that consider enemies with much superior military such as south korea and uh in the united states and mm. it's so um, and but i don't know when that delta happened when did they realize it as a potential weapon system and once again i think that's something they saw somebody else do maybe the russians and so we can do that too. We have that capability, um, mm-hmm. and obviously, um, turn it towards uh, a more of a criminal enterprise as well. I mean, putting on your old political military analyst hat, how do you see the North Korean <clears throat> cyber program, cyber capabilities, kind of fitting into its state capabilities, its broader military political goals? You know, they're. <laughs> Broader military political goals has always been, um, it, I, I call it the North Korean origin theory. Origin theory. North Korea exists opposed the United States. And so it's negotiations with North Korea is difficult and uh, making peace with North Korea is difficult because if North Korea, North Korea is not in opposition, North Korea really can't afford to make peace with the United States because if it's not in opposition to the United States, then what's the stand for? Um, and their weapons capability, and that fits with the uh, fits with the uh, the regime logic, is that they need to be able to be able to threaten the U.S., threaten the U.S. and South Korea, threaten the South Koreans, and threaten the United States. So it gives them that first reach, first attack uh, capability. So I think in that way, it's a, it's very much a very much of a strategic weapon um, that in which they could deter deter the U.S. Uh, from what. They consider as unfriendly actions or or, or actions that threaten their country. Um, 
I'm actually, you know, surprised that there are more North Korean, uh, North Korean cyber attacks, but uh, against the government, against the U.S. government or the, or, or the South Korean government. I think there's really a lot more attack, attacks against South Koreans than there is against the U.S. And much like how the Russians um, have used Ukraine as a, a battle testing ground, I think um, North Koreans take that approach and uh, very much South Korea is their testing ground. Um, so as a weapons weapon system, it's, it's a, we would call a standoff weapon. And I would say um, they must be the best trained uh, military, best, probably the best trained element of the North Korean military. I say this because um, North Korea is not a wealthy country. Um, you know, flying, flying, having and having, having your air force fly and train, it's expensive. Aviation gas, it's, jet fuel is expensive. Having your armor brigades train, it's expensive. But North Korean, um, North Korean cyber warriors or their cyber command, or whatever you want to call it, are able to train in realistic combat conditions every day. And when I say cyber combat conditions, by hacking into uh, other systems, opposing systems, uh, they're training in realistic environments every day. And and so I think they're probably the most best prepared. I would say just from a military analyst perspective is how much they train and do they train in realistic environments. U.S. has the best military in the earth because our military trains hard and they train in realistic environments to the point where you you talk to returning veterans. And so how, how did it go? And what was it? And a lot of times I said, well, it was easier than training. It was easier than the 21 pounds mm-hmm. training exercises, like if you're in the Marine Corps, for example. And and that's I, I think that's that's what that's what worries me is, is the level of reps, level, level of practice that, that these cyber warriors are getting. Mm-hmm. You mentioned the uh, the Sony attack, and I want to dig into that a little bit. This was an attack in 2014 mm-hmm. in which North Korean hackers right. uh, broke into Sony computer systems in retaliation for a film, the interview that satirized right. the regime, and North Korean hackers. It wasn't, I, didn't, I didn't think it was all that funny, actually. I, I saw the movie uh, afterwards. I thought, mm-hmm. It was a, it was a bit of a dud. I remember watching because I was this was just when I had started writing about cybersecurity issues, and I remember being at home in California over the the Christmas holiday and and watching it with with my mother and mm-hmm. on uh, some kind of direct to consumer release, which was somewhat pioneering at the time because movie theaters refused to show it yeah. because they were so afraid of of North yeah. Korean attacks, right? Yeah. But so you were in government at the time. This was a real wake up call, I think, for a lot of folks in terms of what North Korea was capable of and also what types of attacks could be carried out in cyberspace. I'm wondering if you could just describe a bit what that attack looked like from your seat inside the agency. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, Yeah, I was in government and I was I was in charge of Korean analysis. I was creation manager. And, you know, this is. um, one of the things that that I look back and said, I just wonder, how did I miss? How, how did I miss that? And not how did I miss that? How do we miss the specific Sony Pictures Entertainment attack? But how did I miss that North Korea was developing a weapon system? We were so focused on the artillery threat against Seoul, so focused on the missile threat, so focused on the nuclear threat. How do we miss this major weapon system? that they directly, they used to reach out and attack the U.S. homeland. They attacked a U.S.-based company. 
and um, with 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 a weapon they haven't they had not used before, and we completely missed it. And how, how did that happen? And um, it was thinking back to 2014. Well, it's already nine years ago. It's it's it took a while for it to sink into everybody. Um, computers and cyber was not one of the issues that we covered in my my we, we were the regional we were the regional analytics shop so my analysts were the country analysts we're the north korea country team um there's a separate team i don't know what they're called now but they, it, it, it was it used to be called the information operations center and, and they focused on cyber and information information operations at the agency they were the they are they were then whatever the successor organization still is is the cyber security um cyber intelligence center for excellence and you know top-notch great intelligence officers and, and cyber experts i was constantly I'm, I'm i'm talking to my colleague who leads the effort and the cyber part and it took took a while for it to sink into me and I think it took a while for everyone in the D, in DC who are not cyber experts who didn't do that for for a living to kind of kind of realize the magnitude of what just happened. Because a couple of times I remember in various senior level government meetings, people were just like, "Are we sure this was a North Korean?" Because once again, North Korea, poor, starving country, somehow cobbled together, uh, was able to master 1940s technology and build liquid-fueled missiles um, and, and a nuclear weapon. But do they even have computers? Do they have? So it, it took a while to sink in that this really happened. And once it sunk in, it just, the, the, the magnitude of what happened to this company to the point where there was, I think some of the accounts you hear, you hear from people who are actually on the ground helping uh, Sony deal with this. People couldn't get into the building. People couldn't they used to even use the vending machine. They couldn't use the, the badge. It just, everything went down. Um, then, of course, afterwards, leaks started coming out, right, <laughs> about internal emails. And it, it was just like this rolling crisis that's, that almost like a tsunami wave just kept getting worse and worse and worse and just a magnitude just sinking in going, this really this really happened and um like i said as i've told this to colleagues i've been very open about this 22 years and three months at cia that was my biggest surprise uh, mm. was uh, that north korea this developed this uh, uh new weapons capability yeah i mean when you're when you're briefing your bosses on on that incident and and trying to to pick up the pieces of of, of what happened there what are you what are you telling them yeah so so basically my i would defer kind of the ones and zeros of how to say cybersecurity to my uh, colleague who looks at the cybersecurity element my questions that i would field are why motivations and uh, motivations and why now what kind of message is supposed to send um and i said I think we have to reassess how thin-skinned Kim Jong-un is. <laughs> it, that was, it's, he's, 
his father passed away, I believe, in uh, late 2011. So by then, he had been in charge maybe three years. And uh, he, age-wise, he would have he would have been just he would have, I think he'd been early thirties. Um, so he's considered this kind of a young young leader who hasn't really and and he's. 2013 was a tough year. Tough year. Um, he had a lot of North Korean provocations in early 2013, and eventually a nuclear test. Um, and so, people around the world and um, the government types and the intelligence types were kind of looking at it and said, "Well, this, this seems kind of really rash, really brash." Um, really, and the attack against Sony Pictures Entertainment kind of really solidified that reputation, that view of Kim Jong Un as kind of much more rash, um, much more thin-skinned, and and more willing to take chances than his father. And um, I don't know exactly what I said at the time, but I think that's probably that was probably the juxtaposition of it, that um, he really is. There, there probably wasn't a bigger message he's trying to send to the U.S. It really was probably he probably really was angry about a movie that depicted his assassination. Was taking that very personally. Um, and I think him being a young leader, he, um, North Korea, North Koreans never, North Koreans always feel like they're disrespected, um, compared to South Korea. Um, and I think Kim Jong-un just saw that personally as well, that people respected his father more than they were respecting him. Um, I think, um, I, I don't recall too many world leaders or too many uh, people making fun of Kim Jong-il. But there, it, it, it seems like there's been a lot of, lot of mockery of Kim Jong-il. Um, I th- may recall President Trump calling him the little rocket man. <laughs> so <laughs> I, I, I think all that, all that got to him being a young man had something to prove. Um, so I, I think that was kind of the motivation behind it. And that's, that's why I would have uh, informed my bosses, I think, at the time that his yeah, he's got a chip on his shoulders, and it's, it's, we have to think about that. He's a lot less, he's a lot thin-skinned than his dad. Is he like that now? Um, nine years later, I mean, we all grow up. Big transition from your twenties to thirties to forties. Uh, he's he's been in he's been in charge now. Um, you know, more than ten years. More than ten years. Um, had a couple of summits, had some international, and had his share of international crisis that he had to manage, and, and then COVID and everything else. Um, I imagine he's probably a, he's a more mature leader by then. But um, those those were, I think those were the probably probably the key concern driving the policymaker questions about um, if he's this rash, how far can he go? Right, which opens the question <laughs> if he's. If he's willing to, if he's willing to go this far using a cyber tool to attack, for, um, assess was it Seth Rogen and James Franco who made the movie <laughs> against. Um, yeah, it was Franco and yeah, Seth. Yeah, yeah, Franco and Seth Rogen movie. Um, how would he, how would he react if he ever was ever, um, ever ever felt threatened or anything? Um, and I think that really, it's. Um, and I've, and I've said this in the public too, but I really, I really feel like we, um, the international community as a whole, I think missed opportunities to set 
boundaries for Kim Jong-un. I mean, the international community uh, certainly missed the opportunity to set boundaries uh, for, uh, for somebody like Mr. Putin. And I think uh, we uh, missed opportunities to set boundaries for Kim Jong-un. And the response, um, once again, my, my opinion, my personal opinion, response I thought was weak. Um, more sanctions, uh, strongly worded letters and demarches and more sanctions against already probably the most sanctioned country in the world. And I distinctly remember, um, you know, sitting in the, these, these White House meetings, is thinking, I mean, that's that's not even a pinprick. I'm gonna keep doing it until, and then he he feels like he feels until he learns some consequences. Um, if you think about somebody like Kim Jong Un, this, I mean, it's somebody who's never heard the word no until he became the president of the country. Um, his father never said boundaries for him, <laughs> and hmm. you know he was born into wealth and all-knowing power. Um, so if you're gonna have to deal with him in the long run. You're going to have to set some boundaries on what is acceptable and not acceptable behavior, and and I don't think we were doing that. And we had an what opportunity. The international community had an opportunity to do so in 2014. What do you think should have happened in the aftermath of the Sony attack? Um, I what I said that was, and what I still say is, Kim Jong Un just attacked the United States. This was an attack on the United States. And what that level, I mean, no one, no one wants to, no one wants to start the next Korean war, regional conflict, terrible human consequences. But it, whatever needed to do was that Kim Jong-un, North Korea and Kim Jong-un needed to feel, feel, they had to feel some pain. Uh, they had to, they had to really know that U.S. will not allow an attack on its soil um, as we mobilize the country after 9-11. Similar to what that policy is, what that policy is, I can't, I, I wouldn't, I, I can't tell you off, off the top of my head, but I would like to have thought that the best and the brightest minds in the U.S. government will start having a discussion from that framework. We were just attacked, um, but we never we never had that discussion. The discussion instead was basically, once again, my choice of words, but not to not to piss him off, but to basically kind of tread lightly, said because this guy's kind of crazy. We don't know what he's going to do, which plays exactly into Kim Jong Un's hands. Um, I thought, and once again, that's kind of the, been the regime calculus since the end of the Korean War with the North Koreans. Um, that they keep pushing boundaries, pushing boundaries, pushing boundaries until they until they think they pushed a little too far and they back away really quickly, uh, which and it happened a few times in, in, in history. Happened in 76, happened right after the, uh, the Gulf War um, and it happened during the Trump administration <laughs> where I think Kim Jong-un himself really thought, oh my God, this guy's nuts. <laughs> Have there been any instances of North Korea, in your mind, kind of backing off in its in its cyber operations, where it's kind of tested those boundaries and then has pulled back. I, from what I understand, I don't think so. 
Um, I, I don't think those boundaries have been tested yet. And um, I think that's not just a problem in North Korea. I, I'm not sure what the rules of engagement are in cyberspace. Um, love to have a deeper discussion with uh, the cyber experts at DOD or other places that, that think about this. But philosophically, first of all, are there borders? Cyberspace is cyberspace border. I, I tend to think that absolutely cyberspace or cyberspace has borders. Um, because they say, well, it happened out there in the ether. Well, the impact was on Sony Pictures Entertainment. The impact was on, let's say, the British National Health Service, WannaCry. There are victims on the ground, and those people live in a country, they're citizens of a country, they're located in a country, and it's that country's job to defend them. So what are the rules of engagement? And once again, I, I think that's bigger, That's a bigger issue than, than, um, than, than North Korea. And um, I haven't seen them, I, 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 yeah, I, I haven't seen them kind of, there may be self-imposed uh, boundaries, so I don't. I think I think the prudent answer for for North Korea is that even if you had the capability to, let's say, bring down the power grid of a country X, or you can you can have do serious damage to the national bank financial system of country X, South Korea, United States, Japan, fill in the blanks. Do you really want to cross those mountains? Because you know, Kim Jong-un, North Korean regime leaders, they want what all dictators and authoritarian regimes want. They want to rule for life, die in bed, and kind of be able to pass it on to their kids. Um, having a cyber war, pushing a cyber war too far that it actually leads to a physical war, is not in their best interest. Uh, it's not conducive to their long-term survival. So I think whatever restraints there may be is, is more than likely just self-imposed. I'm glad you brought up WannaCry. That was the 2017 ransomware worm, really, that spread around the world. It relied on a leaked NSA exploit and it impacted organizations around the world. You mentioned Britain's National Health Service was was one of them, uh, but the impacts were really global. I, I'm curious, this was three years after you know, Sony Pictures really put the North Korean hackers kind of on the map. What was your assessment of why North Korea carried out the WannaCry attack? And was it successful from the North Korean perspective in your mind? Um, well, first of all, Yes, by then is is three years later. By then, I'm, everybody's paying much much closer attention. Um, just from the technical briefings, I'm not the, I'm not a technical expert. Just from the technical briefings that 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 I recall and conversations we've had, what struck me was the level of what I thought was a level of sophistication and improvement from Sony Pictures Entertainment. Sony Pictures Entertainment, at the end of the day, um, you know, I'm, I'm obviously somebody had to click on a link. As a lot of these attacks happen, there's, there's you know, the weakness in the chain is the human, the human element, right? Um, but I, I was just struck. It was just kind of the wanton destruction. Um, and so, sort of pictures of entertainment was more kind of 
open the door and it's boom, saturation bombardment. Just everything's gone. Uh, WannaCry, it, it seems it struck me as as a as a non-cyber expert, very much more nuanced. And um, and what I would say just from my background as a military analyst, just from more of a more of a precision attack. And that if you're just looking at a regular weapon system, then it, <laughs> You know, that's that's my reference point. Intellectually, I keep coming back to the kind of the reference point of weapons development and military analysis. That's a dramatic level of improvement um, in just capability in just three years. And so I thought, wow, they would, in my view, they would certainly get the most improved gold medal. Um, so that was the first thing. Second thing. By then, I I think um, once again, when you ask the question, when did they start thinking about the weapon? Second question is okay, when did they start thinking about like, hmm, you know what? We can actually make money from this. Money, not in, in a typical North Korean fashion, not in any legitimate way, but by stealing from others. Um, and then at that point, it becomes about domestic politics in North Korea becomes about fundraising. Um, it's, um, and, and you know, North Korean, North Korean uh, history of illicit activities, illegal activities, is pretty long. Um, the most spectacular uh, example of this in the early 2000s, when a North Korean ship seized by the Australians, a North Korean merchant vessel, I believe the vessel's name was Pongsu, uh, it was, it was carrying a cargo full of heroin. <laughs> so North Korean government was smuggling heroin into Australia and became a, well, of course, North Korean government, it's hard for North Korean government. Of course they said, these are all lies. It's your ship, it's your crew, <laughs> it's your cargo. Um, and, you know, it's, it's one, of, one of those moments where, and there have been others where North Korea were just caught completely red-handed. Uh, I believe North Korea also has a unique distinction of only country that has been demolished by the UN for smuggling uh, wildlife and wildlife, exotic wildlife goods like rhino horns and elephant mm -hmm. tusks. Um, so their illicit activities, mis latent misuse and violation of the diplomatic pouches is, is pretty well known throughout the world. Um, so they've always had a culture of using illicit activities, outright illegal activities, even if it's smuggling narcotics and selling narcotics um, to raise money because once again, poor country, poor, much poorer after the, um, the collapse of the Soviet Union, no more Soviet, no more uh, Soviet subsidies. And a uh, one of the one of the rare incidents of a famine in a modern industrialized country in the 90s um, that killed untold number of North Korean citizens and ended in this huge migration exodus of North Koreans out of, uh, out of North Korea, um, being driven out by the famine. So the pressure on, and this is once again, the political analysis uh, element of cyber security is important, is that the political pressure cannot understate or underestimate the political pressure that's on North Korean official to raise money. First, you have to pay for your own operating funds, which includes 
paying for your own salary, mm-hmm. not paying for the salary of your staff. And on top of that, you have to kick back what they call, what I think the North Korean imbalance called, uh, it's an informal tax, but officially, legally, North Korea doesn't have a tax. It's called, the, I mean, it's, I think people call it like a loyalty payment. Um, and it's really North Korean society regime. If you, if you want a kind of a kind of a shorthand answer to a shorthand key to understand it, just it's a, it's, an, it's, a, it's a society in which you get ahead by proving loyalty to the regime, uh, whether that's military achievements, technical breakthroughs. A lot of times it's sending money upstairs uh, to, um, to provide this provide this provide this funding uh, to to pay your loyalty tax. Um, so I guess uh, I, I think that was the driving element was the constant the revenue generation. Um, the Minish's Korean Workers Party munitions industry. Um, where where are you gonna where I'm, you know building nuclear nuclear weapons testing missiles that's expensive. I mean we the world saw what I thought what I thought was a the weirdest take your work day, take your kids to work day ever when Kim Jong-un took his daughter to a missile launch. <laughs> I mean, you can put a price tag on how much that missile launch costs in dollar terms. And they got to get that money. The munition industry has to get that money from somewhere. And if it's like every other North Korean factory, every other North Korean communal farm, you're expected to, to basically fund your own operations and, and, kick, and, and, and provide kickbacks on top of that. And... <laughs> You know, the boss shows up with his daughter. This thing better go right. Uh, it's, so it's a lot of pressure on these people to to just generate revenue, um, run a run a run a tight budget. So it's um, I the revenue generating is a scheme more than anything else. It's it's an outright explains war cry. There's really isn't any bigger political motivation to it. It's well, it's, it's just larceny. Yes, I mean, stepping back for for listeners who might not be aware of some of the figures that have been involved in some of the kind of the more revenue generating focused North Korean cyber operations. In 2016, North Korean hackers hit uh, Bangladesh's central bank, uh, making off with some $81 million, most of which I think ended up being recovered, but I think speaks to the magnitude of their ambitions. Uh, last year, there was a cryptocurrency heist focused on or targeting a, um, a game called Axie Infinity, where North Korean hackers made off with some $615 million worth of cryptocurrency. Um, and this is just kind of a, a small sample of some of the operations that that they've carried out. And um, as you point out, are, are helping to fund some of these uh, North Korean weapons programs and also self-sustain the hacking operations. I'm wondering if uh, maybe we might just step back a bit, and this will be my last question for you. If you could describe a bit how North Korean cyber operations have evolved under Kim Jong Un. You know, recently, recently I was actually, um, you know, thinking about this and uh, working on some, working on some, working on some papers. Uh, maybe for, I was thinking maybe in the future for publication or. Conference presentation. It's Kim Jong Il. So each each member of the members of the Kim family have their own legacy. Kim Il Sung, the founder. Well, he's the founder, and um, and the North Korean 
North Korean propaganda is that he he defeated the Japanese, no mention of the atom bomb, defeated the Japanese, and he defeated uh, the U.S. invasion of North Korea. Um, so that's that's the regime propaganda. So he's the he's the founder and defender of North Korea. Uh, Kim Jong Kim Jong Il, his son, rockets and missiles. Uh, I mean, <laughs> rockets and nukes, missiles and nukes. He developed their strategic weapons program, weapons of mass destruction. So he gifted, if you want to call it that, to the North Korean people, the weapons of mass destruction. Kim Jong-un was uh, the one who really has put like his stamp on the cyber as his weapon. And he brought the war to the United States. I cannot emphasize this enough. Ideologically, that is a huge, huge point and a huge point of emphasis. And makes a big difference, I think, how to look at Kim Jong and, and cyber and, and, and cyber tools. He brought that's the, the those are weapons that he perfect he probably I'm just speaking from a regime propaganda perspective that he would have perfected. He brought the war to the United States, and and he's the one with that with that tool, and and that's tied directly to him. So it's um, I think once again it's it's his brand, the the nukes and missiles people and, and nukes and missiles what people talk about mostly, but that's his dad's brand. That's like talking about your <laughs> in like the car commercials. Like that's your dad. That's that's your dad's Oldsmobile. I'm dating myself with that reference. <laughs> his his brand his brand what his his weapon of choice, what what he's what he put his stamp on. And, and stands behind is um, is is the is is the uh, cyber cyber weapons and the fact that he brought his family's war to the United States and attack the United States, attack South Korea, right? Attack South Korea, attacked, and if you want to draw in everything else, attacked the UK and and, and around the world. Hmm. Yo, thank you so much for sharing your expertise and experience and coming on the show. Well, thanks so much for having me. Thanks for listening to Safe Mode, a weekly podcast on cybersecurity and digital privacy brought to you by CyberScoop. If you've enjoyed this episode, please leave us a rating and a review and share it with your friends, your mom, your dad. Nobody wants to get hacked. To find out more information or to contact me, your host, please visit cyberscoop.com.